Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Philip Kynes, CEO and founder of KML Vision, to talk about microscopy image analysis. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather, for having me. Philip, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create KML Vision? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in computer science. I did my PhD at the Medical University in Graz, and I was working on creating automated image analysis solutions for mainly histology images. And while doing that, I noticed that there are many, many different people struggling with the sheer size and amount of of image data that they are confronted with in their daily work. And yeah, after kind of finishing my PhD, I created KML Vision with my co-founder, Michael, and we were basically set out to help people overcome this barrier of using newest technologies for image analysis. So what all are you, are you doing at KML Vision these days, and, and why is it important for, for life science research? So actually, when we started out, it was just the two of us, and we were thinking about how we can best support those researchers with their questions. Many of them do not have the abilities to apply advanced image analysis technology to solve their use cases efficiently, so they struggle and kind of put a lot of effort into optimizing people rather than the tools and technologies. We noticed, okay, that would be some interesting business for us, but in the in the end, we wanted to create something scalable. So in 2018, actually, we started to implement our cloud platform, Ecosa. That's basically our flagship product that allows you to train your own AI solutions for, for image recognition online. And it's important for life science research because there is still a big gap between what is technologically possible in a research or lab setting and what is actually out there and what people can can use. And so we are actually focusing on bridging that gap, giving the technology and the ability to people who would not have a background in computer science, but they are much more focused on getting the results from, from the biological research questions. So who are these end users? What is their level of experience? Clearly, they're not very technical in the image analysis space, but what is their background and what are they looking to accomplish? So that really depends on the use case. We have seen, I mean, from in vitro research, doing a lot of screening applications, also histology, multifluorescence imaging, up to transmission electron microscopy or in general ultrastructure analysis. Everybody has a little bit of a different access to resources on how to work with such a technology. So I would say that it's it's quite diverse and biologists who are really interested in, okay, getting certain structures quantified, that would be the ones that are I think mostly benefiting from the from our technology and the level goes up until machine learning researchers who basically want to accelerate the pace or 
yeah, make it faster how they can extract meaningful information from images, even if they are, for example, located as a as an expert in a competence center or in a core facility for imaging. They appreciate our solution because it's super easy to use and creates very fast results and is scalable. And what kind of life science problems are, are they tackling? What what are they trying to do with the analysis? What what do they want to quantify and for what purpose? So let's kind of split it into different areas. The first area would be everything related to tissue imaging, everything related to rather digital pathology in that direction. And the other would be the biotech sector. There's a lot of cell culture screening and so on. Also spheroids, the biotech industry is currently really hot on that topic. So depending on which area you're in, let's just first tackle the the histology. I mean, a very common use case is just, can you count this type of cells in my tissue? I'm requiring that for a certain readout and to infer my next step in my research pipeline that can go until to yeah, segment or measure different thicknesses of layers in, in histology-ish images. For example, if it comes to, to skin or other organs where this is relevant. And then there's the biotech sector where you have like much higher volumes in order to kind of get a statistical relevance on a certain drug response or toxicity and so on. So those are two different scenarios where in both cases, the quantification mainly relies on an accurate segmentation of tissue or other structures and the extraction of quantitative shape parameters or intensity parameters from those segmentations. So in these image analysis problems of segmenting structures or, or encounting individual objects, what role does machine learning play? Yeah, a big one. So it wouldn't be possible, I would say, without machine learning. Because back in the day when we started, there was yeah the onset of deep learning, I would say. Before that, there was a huge yeah community around all these decision tree-based methods and so on. And when it comes to like automating very complex structures or the, the, the recognition of complex structures, the human is kind of biased when it comes to assessing those structures and to kind of creating this objectivity and reproducibility we need to capture that consensus of different experts on certain yeah, subject matters into an, a machine basically and into an algorithm and that is actually the the key to creating this reproducibility enabling them to be faster and to to have like a more quantitative basis evidence-based readouts to go on and continue the research so are you training models based on the data provided by the end user or by imagery that you bring into the platform initially and train the models for the end user to be able to use? So there are two folds. Both is possible with our platform. We have a set of pre-trained, predefined applications, basically, that are very specific for individual use cases. And then there is this self-trainable version called Ecosa AI, and there you can basically upload their own data, annotate the structures that they are interested in, run a training and create an application that they can then scale and apply to their other images and create the readouts. So in the case of the the first example there where you're training models and the uh, users are applying it to many different types of data, how do you go about gathering and annotating training data in order to to train these models? What's involved in, in that process? 
I think the main point here is to work very closely with the domain experts. I mean, if you look at creating such very specialized applications, probably in niche applications too, you wouldn't find too many people on the streets who would know what actually is which object in such images, let alone having the experience to discriminate with a high confidence when it comes to very low interclass distance, for example, or in biology, I mean, you, everything is kind of continuous and to kind of focus on or, or making this continuous spectrum discrete is sometimes yeah, subject to bias. So we really rely on, on people who are working with this data, who are familiar with the domain, with the subject. They help us to create basically the best possible symbiosis between the computer science world. So everything that you need to kind of prepare so that the machine can understand and learn it with the biology world. And then in training models on this data that you have collected and annotated, what kind of challenges do you, do you encounter with, with microscopy images? So there are a couple of challenges. I mean, first, I would say it's kind of critical how you balance your data. I mean, if you have an object or some structure of interest that is super underrepresented, that there is just a lot of not interesting stuff around in the tissue, then you probably need to have a, a strategy how to annotate that, how to focus the model on certain regions where the relevant information is represented. Also selecting patches, for example, from, from big microscopy images that are non-redundant in order to maximize the variability those are definitely challenges that could be a problem or could get a problem in, in many use cases if you don't know how to do it right. And regarding the different modalities, there's definitely a certain domain shift, not only in the pathology domain, but also when it comes to imaging the same structure with different illuminations in, in, in a phase contrast microscopy setting. Or even go ahead and say, okay, exposure times in fluorescent channels, they are so different um, between two experiments or two devices that you need to normalize your data. That is definitely something which is a challenge. So let's talk a little bit more about that domain shift problem, whether it's you know slightly different type of imagery that an end user brings in or the lighting has changed or something about it has changed. How do you ensure that your the models you've already trained will continue to perform well on on imagery that's just a little bit different? Or, or do you need to make updates in, in that situation? Yeah, so the ones we have been trained or we have trained in the platform, they are basically representing, I would say, 80% of what we can anticipate. Of course, there is always some border region, some, some samples that you cannot really see when you start collecting your data and annotating that. I guess then most of the time people would just call and say, hey, this is not going to work on my data. What is the problem? And then sometimes we just figure out, okay, they have a different setting or maybe their filter is not correctly adjusted. They have a lot of crosstalk. They have stuff that you can fix in the image acquisition so that you can actually create better quality images that can be analyzed much easier than rather than adapting the technology for the recognition or the, the computational part to what's out there. So I think that is one of the main reasons we encounter these domain shifts. That's a really good point about the image acquisition step. And if you can get better quality images, reduce the noise, reduce the artifacts, reduce whatever that complication is, that makes the, the rest of the process 
more consistent, more robust, and you know, definitely easier to to work with in a in a machine learning world. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. So, thinking back to when you're developing a new product or a new feature, how does your your team plan and develop the, the machine learning aspects of it? What, what actions do they take in the beginning of that plan? So, I think it starts with understanding what the problem is and how to formulate it. As I said, most of our applications are segmentation applications. Since we want to have this transparency and, and interpretability of the results, and that is kind of obvious if the model segments something correctly, you see it. If you do classification, you would need to apply some other technologies to make it more tangible what the model is actually doing. So the first step would always be to understand what, what is actually the data. How is it structured? If it is already structured or if we need to bring it into form that is structured and how would you choose the best fitting annotation strategy? So I think with equipped with those two things, you will be having a very good foundation to train a robust model also in a, in a shorter time. Nobody has time to kind of invest eight, 10 weeks into creating new applications. Everything is at a super fast pace. So you need to make sure to have very good foundation to start off. Then, of course, they go ahead and test different models, hyperparameter settings, and so on. We do have a large battery of, of models that we can test and find a suitable candidate to, to go with. Yeah, from there, it's basically creating the baseline, optimizing the model, and then ultimately deploying it to the platform as an application. One of the challenges in biomedical research right now, and likely in other areas of scientific research as well, is the lack of reproducibility. A team publishes a paper and another group may go and try and replicate it and something doesn't work. In using your platform, how does this improve the reproducibility for life science research? Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, recently, we actually had an article written about these reproducibility issues. The thing is that once you can capture the knowledge of on a specific, let's say, image evaluation routine into an application with or without machine learning, you will create like a gold standard. And creating a gold standard that can be shared is, I think, super crucial because you save so much time and effort that others need to put in to recreate those models. So on our platform, it's super easy to also share different projects with each other. And if that's wanted, you can even share entire applications you have trained. So you can invite people and say, hey, take a look at what we have done. For example, that was published in a paper. You can be part of the of such an evaluation project, run it on your data, check it out if it's working, give us feedback. So it, it creates this environment, this platform to, for a conversation. What can be the next steps so that nobody or I would say in an ideal world, nobody has to do things twice and we just save a lot of time and money in, in the research community. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? So I can just speak for like this biotech and healthcare or biopharma space. I think there is a lot of, and of course, in the setting of image recognition, I mean, when it comes to speech recognition or text and so on, I'm, I'm absolutely no expert. So I will focus on on the imaging part, I think it's super interesting to take a look what others have been doing and find out basically what the gap is between 
current solutions and the state of the art, let's say, and understand what your clients' expectations are. I mean, this is super critical, I would say, if you go for, let's say, I mean, we, we made this error in the beginning too. So we were driven by academic uh, paper writing. Yeah, you need to kind of squeeze out the last that's place of some performance on a data set. But that's not what's in, in reality, what's practically relevant. What you want to do is to create the value for your customer. And if the customer is satisfied with, I don't know, 0.8 recall, and it still solves the problem, you should understand and learn, okay, this is this is enough. And that is actually solving my client's problem. So don't over-optimize according to numbers. Well, I know you said at the beginning you're you're dating this related to imaging and biopharma space you're in, but I'm I'm fairly certain that applies to any other startups in in the space as well. And anyone dealing with AI and even outside AI, you need to solve a valuable problem. And whether that's with AI or without, that's the way to a, a successful startup to to solve that problem. Yeah, I guess my answer was broader than I expected. <laughs> And finally, where do you see the impact of KML Vision in three to five years? So I get this question a lot. (laughs) The impact is definitely in a region where we give more and faster access to state-of-the-art technologies to a broad audience. So we do have like a a very low threshold to access our tools. It's cloud-based. So basically, once you sign up on on our website, you get a free trial where you can test out all the features for one month and yeah, take it for a test drive. And I think if you manage to provide a good user experience and convince by by convenient features, by by good performing or well-performing algorithms and applications, then there will be a definitive impact on both the academic research and the industry. Because in the end, nobody has really time to go into yeah, the inner workings of, of deep learning. They want to use it like the smart, we use the smartphone today. So and this is where we want to be in three to five years. This has been great. Philip, your team at KML Vision is doing some really interesting work for life science research. I expect that the insights you shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? I will invite everyone to check out our website at www.kmlvision.com and to sign up for a free trial at app.acosa.ai and yeah, check out what we have in store. Feel free to reach out to us. We'll be happy to give you a demo and yeah, take a look at your use cases, help you solve your next image recognition challenge. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.